Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the Battle of Thermopylae. This is, of course, one of the most famous and well-known battles from all of ancient history. It's the, the famous last stand that was made by King Leonidas I of Sparta and his 300 Spartans and quite a bloody lot of other Greeks too, like a lot of other Greeks that somehow just get left out of the picture a lot of the time. Um, the popular conception of this battle, of course, is that you know only 300 soldiers held off this army of millions that the Persians managed to pull together. Uh, and that is, uh, well, it is total nonsense, really. It is, it is not, that's not how it was at all. There were around 7,000 Greeks from various city-states that fought up to, uh, up to 300,000 Persians. So the numbers were a little, a little off there. Um, but that, that was the, the, the real, you know, the real fact of the matter at, at the Battle of Thermopylae, uh, as we'll talk about. But uh, there's no doubt at all that the, the overall thrust of the story, the, you know, the, 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 the story that you probably heard, the one of self-sacrificial heroism in, you know, in defense of, a, of an invaded homeland, there, there's no doubt about that. That part is certainly true because the Battle of Thermopylae, uh, it was an important part of the Greco-Persian Wars. We've chatted about the, you know, we talked about the Greco-Persian War last week uh, while getting across the, the Battle of Marathon. And we're going to continue talking about this conflict, not just today not just this week but also next week as well there's so much to talk about all these stories sort of all lead into one another i'm enjoying getting stuck into all of them exploring how these battles shaped and influenced one another and the battle of thermopylae was you know it was sort of the next step i guess the next chapter of this story in the greco-persian war a bit of a break a bit of a break between the uh between the the battle of marathon and the battle of thermopylae but still they are related and, and talking about the the way that the the whole conflict between the greeks and the persians the course that it took is it's 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 really interesting. So um, this week, you know, as I say, Battle of Thermopylae, a uh, lot to get across. Uh, next week as well, we'll be talking about the monumentally important Battle of Salamis. That's what's coming up next week. So uh, I hope you stick around for that. But for now, Thermopylae, pick up the story uh, from where we left off last week. Uh, be sure to get across that episode before listening to this one, I reckon, because, you know, I'm, I'm going to continue this episode assuming that you know where we finished last episode as well so while it doesn't quite have part one part two in the name of the episode that's sort of the territory in here so uh, anyway let's get to it here um, let's get underway with the story of the battle of thermopylae here we go so going all the way back here we're going all the way back to 490 bce once again bce here so we're counting down we're counting years down not up as time goes on uh, the next year after 490 BCE is 489 BCE, and obviously the, today's entire story is in is before the Common Era, so I'll just say 490 rather than 490 BCE to save some time. You know the drill by now. Anyway, back in 490, we're picking things up more or less exactly where we left off last week. Battle of Marathon has just finished. The Athenians they've wiped the floors with the uh, with the Persians at Marathon, uh, got back to Athens to secure the city. Job done. Now the Persians, after their defeat at the Battle of Marathon, an unexpected defeat as well for them. They retreat back across the Aegean Sea, they, you know, to lick their wounds. And the defeated Darius, the 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 emperor, the Persian emperor, he is determined to raise an even bigger force than before, and he's going to come after the Athenians uh, and and the Greek world in general, really, with fire and fury. Except he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't. And look, you know. In his defence, he's got a very good reason for never coming after the uh, the Greek world with fire and fury. It's because he bloody died before he ever got the chance to. I mean, that'll do it, right? Darius never sees the Ionian revolt revenged. 
he never gets his chance to go after Athens or their Greek allies. And the reason for that is that he, you know, he popped his clogs a couple of years after the Battle of Marathon in 486, while Darius is, you know, he's been busy assembling this massive army he's going to use to push into Greece. But instead of pushing into Greece, he has to use his forces to put down a huge rebellion in Egypt instead. I mentioned last week how the Persian Empire at this point constantly having to deal with revolts and rebellions all over the place. And the Egyptians, they got a real blinder coming for Darius at this stage. So he packs up his army, he gets ready to march south instead, and then just dies i mean the bloke he was in his mid-60s his health wasn't great he wasn't up to another big military campaign so he uh he carks it and that's the end of him he dies before he can even march on egypt but his son xerxes the first i'll tell you what he takes the reins he's he you know he's the new emperor of the persian empire no worries at all and leaps into action picking up where his old man left off he marched south to egypt with this massive army that his dad had assembled and he crushes the egyptians into the dirt he crushes this revolt uh, no worries at all not today mate he says and that's the end of that and then once the egyptian revolt has been put down continuing in his father's footsteps he begins to eye off greece Xerxes continues to build up this colossal Persian army in readiness for the invasion of Greece. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of blokes are made ready for war. Now, Xerxes seems to have had a few rather interesting ideas to solve some of the logistical problems involved with transporting such a massive army. For instance, how are they going to get this you know, monumentally large number of people from Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, across the Aegean Sea and into Greece itself? Xerxes decides to build a bridge, which is, you know, a reasonable thing to do. He's not building it across the, uh, you know, the Aegean. That'd be, is it the Aegean or the Aegean? Whatever it is, he's not building a bridge across it. That's obviously ridiculous, right? Everyone knows where the narrowest point from, from the Asian continent to the European continent is. It's obviously where modern day Istanbul is, right? Across the, uh, across the Bosporus. And that's exactly not where he decides to build this bridge. He instead, he instead decides to bridge the Hellespont, which is known today as the Dardanelles. The Dardanelles, not the much narrower Bosporus where you find modern-day Istanbul, as I say, he decides to construct a pontoon bridge across the Dardanelles, which is not a narrow distance. On top of that, he also diggy, he ordered the digging of a canal across the isthmus of Mount Athos in, in modern-day Greece. Uh, in 492, a Persian fleet had suffered a very heavy defeat while trying to round Mount Athos, this isthmus. Uh, so he just wanted to sail across it instead, just cut out the middleman straight across the isthmus, no worries at all. These are massive feats of engineering. I mean, particularly at the time, but they are done, they are undertaken they're, they're, and they're completed to speed the progress of a force that is hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of troops large. It is massive. It is, the, it is one of the largest armies the world has yet seen. Now, our mate Herodotus, right, the bloke in the sun, he's on the front cover of the podcast. He's one of the uh, he's one of the primary sources of this entire story, and we do know that Herodotus, you know, he he didn't let the truth get in the way of a good story here and there. I mean, his defence was always well. I was just reporting what I was told, but he didn't seem to be, you know, too keen on the old fact checker every now and again. Anyway, he says, right, he tells us apparently that the uh, the Persian army, when it was marching, right, it it, it pulled up one uh, one day on the banks of the Echidorus River, right, today known as the, as the Gallicos, and they drank it dry. That's how many people are, have been assembled. That's how many people that Xerxes is marching into Greece. They drank a river dry. I mean, maybe that's why it's called the Gallicos today, not the Echidorus. Maybe they'd have to rename it because it's a new river, you know, it needs a new name. Anyway, in 480 BCE, the Persian preparations, they're complete. 
the campaign begins. They march across the pontoon bridge over the Hellespont into Greece, drinking rivers dry, and many Greek city-states that had been, you know, buoyed by the Athenian successive marathon we talked about last week, many of these Greek city-states that thought maybe the Greeks had a chance, they capitulate. Xerxes had, a, had an army the likes of which had never been seen. It was incomprehensibly massive. And these city-states, they feared total annihilation if they were, you know, try to stand up to this bloke trying to resist this, this army. So... The Persians, they march onwards further and further into Greece, facing very little in the way of any real resistance. However, they take their time. You know, they aren't hurrying, which when you think about the logistics of, you know, transporting hundreds of thousands of people into what is going to become very shortly, you know, hostile foreign territory, you'd think you'd want to get at it with a fair bit of speed. But no, Xerxes seemed to be pretty cruisy about the whole thing, and he's taking his time getting his troops uh, you know, marching them further, further west and further south into the into the Greek heartlands. But as for the Greeks, let's talk about what they are up to at this point. I mean, it's worth remembering at this point. We'll remind ourselves the Greeks uh, that you know Greece back then wasn't actually Greece as we understand it today. Talked about last week. The overwhelming majority of you know of its ancient history has Greece not being one unified political or cultural entity. It was made up of various city-states that, you know, look, they might have had cultural and, and linguistic links, certainly, but otherwise fiercely independent of each other and oftentimes didn't get on too well at all. They're, you know, usually fighting and whatever else in all sorts of different conflicts. There was a fair bit of rivalry or just straight-up enmity between many of the Greek city-states and the two most powerful of these city-states, Athens and Sparta, they'd often fight like cats in a sack, but... All of these hostilities are about to be put aside once again in the face of a common enemy. As Persia is building up its army throughout the 480s, the Greeks do the same. Particularly the Athenians, who pour resources into building a navy. They construct this huge fleet of triremes, warships with three rows of oars on each side, uh, great big sails, you know what they look like. But they know that this navy is not going to be enough. They know that they need to meet the threat of the Persians on land as well as on the sea. And so they begin to no negotiate alliances with other city-states, and most notably... Sparta. And this seemingly unlikely alliance between states that, again, last week I described as a, a militaristic oligarchy and this young nascent democracy, I mean, it's not only unlikely, but it is further strengthened in 481 when Xerxes, just like his old man, sent emissaries demanding submission before his invasion. He sent all these emissaries uh, to, to all these various Greek city-states looking again for the old earth and water, the tokens of submission. And, well, I mean, I say all. Actually, it wasn't all of them. Because he didn't send them to Athens and Sparta. And perhaps with good reason. As you remember last week, the Athenians and the Spartans just killed these emissaries that the Persians had sent. But this results in, funnily enough, Athens and Sparta being thrust into the spotlight as the leading forces resisting the Persians. Other Greek city-states that sought to stand up to the invaders, they began to seek the guidance and the leadership of the Athenians and the Spartans. And so in late 481... A meeting of these city-states is held in Corinth, right? And this alliance is formalised between Athens and Sparta and all these other city-states that want to take the fight to the Persians. And a lot of it is because of the fact that Xerxes kind of singles out Athens and Sparta as his main enemies, these enemies that he's not even going to attempt to, you know, bargain for submission. He's just going to conquer them outright. So they become a rallying point for all of this Greek resistance here. And, uh, you know... A lot of city-states flock to the banners of uh, of Athens and Sparta. They come to Corinth and they they get involved in this in this alliance, you know, this confederate alliance. And it's kind of funny to think about some of the city-states that got involved in this alliance because many of them were actually technically still at war with one another. 
Uh, but despite this, they signed up. They joined this uh, this confederation of these city states wanting to fight um, wanting to fight the Persian invaders. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and all that sort of stuff. And so, much of the Greek world comes together to try to address the threat that this gigantic Persian army you know it poses to them all. Right. So plans are drawn up, they're debated, they're considered, and ultimately settled upon. The Greeks decide to fight the Persians both on land and at sea. Now, there are a few factors that going in, go into their decision-making here. They recognise that they're outnumbered. There's no way around that. It, didn't, it wouldn't matter if they mustered all the forces across the entire Greek world and united them all under one banner, they'd still be outnumbered by the Persians. So they recognise that they can't, use, they can't rely on sheer force of numbers. Instead, they've got to be clever with where these battles, where any confrontation with the Persians takes place. And because the Greeks have this home ground advantage, because they have the defender's advantage, they can kind of pick where they want these fights to take place, they're in a position to leverage the terrain and the you know other, other circumstances that would have an impact on the battle and in some way offset the disadvantage that they would otherwise have from having such, uh, uh, you know, relatively reduced numbers compared to this massive Persian force. On top of these battle plans that are laid out, they also lay out the plans that, you know, the, the sort of the plan B, the what if, the what they're going to, the next steps after this first round of engagement uh, in, in this theory of the conflict against Xerxes, uh, with plans to do things like evacuate Athens, uh, if the Persians should arrive there to prevent, you know, a wholesale slaughter and uh, defend Corinth as the, en- the entrance to the Peloponnesian Peninsula, that sort of thing. But the thrust of their plan, the main focus of their plan, is how they are going to address the immediate threat of the Persians marching into, you know, the, the, the Greek heartland here. As part of their approach into Greece, the Persians would have to route their navy through the Straits of Artemisium, right? And they'd have to march their army through a narrow pass known as Thermopylae, the Hot Gates. Thermopylae was, it's not anymore, a very narrow coastal passage where rocky mountains came almost right down to the shoreline of the sea. Now, if you visit the area today, it is radically different. Not only has the shoreline retreated by a couple of kilometres, but about you know 20 metres of sediment has also been deposited on top of what used to be this narrow pass. It doesn't look anything like it did 2,500 years ago. In fact, there's now this you know, big highway that runs along the the wide coastal plain between the mountains and the sea. I mean, it's it's, it's hardly a narrow pass. It doesn't look anything like it used to. But back in 480, the pass between the mountains and the shore, very narrow indeed, less than 100 metres across, a huge choke point for a massive force such as the invading Persian army. And it gets better than that. It had been used in the past as a defensive choke point. There was a wall that actually uh, sectioned off uh, sectioned off part of this pass and made it even narrower, even easier to defend. So you'll remember from last week, we talked about the defensive capabilities of Greek hoplites. The Athenians were able to win the Battle of Marathon based on the fact that their troops held a defensive advantage for so long. With this choke point provided by the gap at Thermopylae, the Greeks reasoned that they could they could station a, you know, a small number of hoplites there and hold off a much larger force. The effectiveness of the Persian numbers would be hugely undermined if they could only fight at a choke point. It doesn't matter if you've got hundreds of thousands of troops, if only you know, a handful of them can actually fight at, at one time. And so the plan was settled. The Athenians would take to the sea and defend the Straits of Artemisium, another choke point, a naval choke point here that would enable them to uh, once again contest much higher numbers on the sea. But on land, in Th- at Thermopylae, right, the Spartans would lead the land-based defence, securing this choke point and holding it with the defensively superior Greek hoplite. 
This was the best way to try to under, undermine the overwhelming numerical superiority of the, of the Persian forces, staging their battles, as I say, in choke points, where you can offset the disadvantage of being outnumbered. And when it came to Thermopylae in particular, the pass was the perfect place for the hoplites to defend. You remember last week we talked about the impenetrability of the defensive phalanx when Greek hoplites form a shield with bristling spears coming out of it. Thermopylae's narrow width and marshy ground meant that cavalry would be absolutely useless, unable to, to, to flank defensive hoplites or use their mobility. And once again, just like in Marathon, the Greeks have the defender's advantage on their side. They can just sit there. They can sit there, defend the choke point, remain well supplied with easy access to friendly supply lines. But the Persians, on the other hand, they're feeding hundreds of thousands of soldiers and support staff every day a long way from home. So, you know, the Greeks, they can hunker down, defend themselves and wait. But the Persians, on the other hand, they will be forced to act. The Persians, however, as I said before, they're taking their time. They are taking their time in marching through Thrace, through Macedon, down towards Athens and Sparta. So long, in fact, that summer was almost over by the time that they were marching through Thessaly. And you won't believe what comes next because of the delayed approach of the Persians. Remember last week how the Spartans couldn't come and aid the Athenians because of the, that religious festival we talked about, Carnea, it f- forbade them from fighting? Well, you would think that the delay of the Persians arriving in the parts of Greece that they wanted to defend would only be a boon to, you know, to the Spartans needing to defend this area. But it took so long for the Persians to arrive in the part of Greece that, that the Spartans were looking to defend that by the time they got there, Carnea had come around again. Carnea was upon the Spartans once again just as the Persians began to arrive. And on top of that, it was also an Olympic year. So the Olympic truce was in effect. This meant that the Spartan army was forbidden from marching to war for two different reasons. And it would have been horrifically sacrilegious for them to march against the Persians at this time. However, one of the two Spartan kings, Leonidas I, he's not happy with this situation. He's going to do something about it. By the way, Sparta was traditionally ruled by two kings. Um, obviously, we you know, hear a lot about Leonidas I, very famous indeed. We don't often hear too much about his co-regent, uh, Leotychidas, but he doesn't really come into this story too much. Anyway, Leonidas, uh, he wants to stick to the agreed plan. He wants to hold the Persians at Thermopylae. Religious festivals be damned, he said. I want to go up there and I want to make sure that we give them what for to, to, you know, to try to prevent this onslaught. So he talks to the E4s, the, uh, the, a ruling council of Spartan elites, right? And the E4s decide that in light of the seriousness of the situation, that Leonidas could, after all, march to Thermopylae and attempt to defend it. However, he could not take the Spartan army. He could take only a small force to defend the pass, and he leapt at the chance to do this. Leonidas took with him 300 soldiers, the royal bodyguard, and he marched north with all speed to Thermopylae, intending upon meeting the Persians there and holding the pass. Now, of course, I mentioned before the common conception, or I should say the common misconception about this situation is that it was just 300 Spartan soldiers against the hundreds of thousands or even millions of Persian, uh, Persian invaders. And, you know, we've got popular media like Frank Miller's 300 to thank for that. 300 is a, it's a very entertaining piece of media, certainly, but it is not grounded in all that much fact at all. Uh, it's quite amusing, for instance, to hear Leonidas in Frank Miller's 300 Disparaging, disparagingly refer to the Athenians as boy lovers uh, when, you know, Sparta had pederasty more or less socially enforced as part of its culture. Blokes are rooting each other all over the place in ancient Greece. It's no secret. So 
No, it wasn't just 300 Spartans who, who fought the Persians at Thermopylae. In fact, Leonidas, on his way to Thermopylae, he rallied and recruited thousands and thousands of Greeks from various city-states as he as he led the, led the march up north. There were 1,000 Arcadians, 1,000 Phocians, there were 700 Thespians, there were 500 Mantinians, there were 500 Tegeans, 400 Corinthians, 400 Thebans, plenty of other smaller forces from other city-states in addition to a small force or a small group, I should say, of helots, right? Now, helots were, oh, it's it's tough to say exactly what they were, but the, the, the simplest way to say it, and again, I'll, I'll accept people disagreeing with this characterization, but the simplest way to say it is that they were state-owned slaves. They were slaves owned not by people uh, specifically, individually, but by the state of Sparta, and they were put to use in various uh, positions throughout Spartan society. But again, you know, you can kind of dress up helots in whatever way you want. They were slaves and they were taken along as well, uh, whether they liked it or not, alongside these Spartans and the rest of the Greeks who, uh, who went along marching with Leonidas in order to defend Thermopylae. After arriving, uh, Leonidas, his Spartans and the rest of the Greeks, they set up shop. They get ready to, uh, to hunker down and, uh, and defend this pass. Uh, and Leonidas, he positioned the bulk of the Greek forces, obviously within just the narrowest point of the narrowest part of the choke point, right? At its narrowest point, where uh, some Phocians of yesteryear that built this wall that I mentioned before uh, to defend the pass in a previous conflict, and he sent uh, the Phocians themselves, not the ones who built the wall, but the ones that had come with him. Uh, he sent it, the, the those thousand blokes up along this uh, this small mountain path that could have been used potentially by the Persians to get around to the uh, to the rear of the uh, of the Greek encampment there so this was a way that they could actually get across the mountains without going through the uh, going through Thermopylae here so after having bolstered his defenses this mountain path getting his troops all set up in position next to this Phocian wall defending the narrowest point of the uh, of, of the pass here their defenses are now ready the Greeks they wait for the arrival of the Persian army and sure enough before long Xerxes forces appear on the horizon this staggeringly large army had finally come. But how large? You're probably wondering. Now, it's difficult to say. Our mate Herodotus, he puts the number at over two and a half million on both land and sea. But this number just doesn't really hold up to much scrutiny. I mean, you know, at the most basic level, there just wouldn't been a, there wouldn't have been enough water available for such a number of people to drink. The military logistics of the ancient world certainly aren't what they are today. And uh, there was just no way that, that Xerxes and the Persians could have supplied such a huge number of people. Some historians think that Herodotus actually misinterpreted Persian numbers when they were reported to him and mixed up the terms for 1,000 troops and 10,000 troops. Uh, and if that's the case, that would put the army at a much more reasonable 250,000. And, 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 you know, if that's the case... Certainly, it makes sense. Most modern estimates put the Persian army at between 150 and, and 300,000 uh, troops. Still, an overwhelmingly huge number. I mean, when you're there with 7,000 of your mates, it doesn't matter if you're up against a quarter of a million or two and a half million. You're still very sorely outnumbered here. But when this massive army appeared, the Greeks, they came together in a council of war to make the final decisions on how their defences were going to be played out. Some of the Greeks there, they were less than optimistic about their chances against such a huge enemy. You know, despite the, 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 the defender's advantage they enjoyed, despite the defensive capabilities of the Spartan and, and the rest of the Greek hoplites there, 
they were worried that this battle was already a foregone conclusion that just be wiped off the face of the earth by sheer force of numbers there. And, and there was one soldier, apparently this is according to Herodotus, right, at this council, there was one soldier who voiced his fear. He said that he'd been told, he'd heard that the Persian army was so big that, the, that when their archers fired a volley of arrows, there were that many arrows that they blocked out the sun. And in response to this soldier saying this, apparently there was a Spartan hoplite there whose name was Dionikis, and he replied by saying that this was actually good news, not something that they should be afraid of or worried about, because then <clears throat> the battle against them would be in the shade. This brilliant one-liner has been told and retold over the years and even attributed to other people at various points. Plutarch tells us that Leonidas said it, not Dionikis, but the phrase then we will fight in the shade didn't actually appear for another couple of centuries. It's probably not the original form the line took. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very, very funny thing to have said, you know, thinking about fighting this overwhelmingly huge army against insurmountable odds and you're worried about, you know, making sure you don't get sunburnt. Pretty funny indeed. Anyway, uh, it's not the only famous line, one line that have come from this battle either. I mean, you know, I'm sure many of you have heard of perhaps the most famous uh, quip that came from the Battle of Thermopylae. After the Council of War, the Spartans and their allies, they stood ready and waiting for the Persians to challenge them. And uh, eventually Xerxes sent emissaries off to meet the Greeks and, and try to negotiate a surrender. These emissaries offered the Greeks the chance to, uh, to, to surrender safely and, and, and handed over a written demand from Xerxes for them to hand over their arms. Now, Leonidas's response to this is obviously a, it is the it's legendarily famous, uh, more so even than the bit about fighting in the shade. His response to this uh, this demand from Xerxes, he said, Molon lave, which literally translates as having come, take them. But it's more commonly translated as come and take them. This phrase, you know, come and take our weapons is... Uh, it's been used by everyone from 20th century, from the 20th century Greek army to Texan revolutionaries. These days, it's often spouted by American gun nuts in defense of their ludicrous Second Amendment. Very different set of circumstances, I'd say, for you to be invoking that. But, you know, go off, mate, whatever. Anyway, the Greeks, they have decided to defend the pass as planned. And they have rebuked the Persian emissaries when they came seeking surrender. So there is nothing left for them to do but wait for the fight to begin. And what a wait it was, because the Greeks, obviously, you know, they're, they're not going to budge from their defensive position in the narrowest part of the choke point. It is up to Xerxes to begin his offensive into the waiting spears of the Spartan hoplites. And I tell you this, time is against him. He is marching with an army of hundreds of thousands, and all of these blokes, they need to be fed and watered every day. They need to be supplied. So the longer he waits here, the less time he has to successfully complete this invasion of Greece. So as I say, time is against him. And perhaps as a result of this, after four days of waiting and realising that the Greeks are not going to surrender their position, Xerxes finally orders the attack. The Persian attack opened with a volley of arrow fire from around 5,000 archers. However, just as, with, just as with Marathon, it was absolutely useless for them. The hoplites were very easily able to deflect or absorb the barrage of arrows with their shields and their armour, and then they readied themselves for the Persian infantry as it approached. Xerxes sent his foot soldiers in to engage the hoplites hand-to-hand, -hand, and, I mean, you listened to last week's episode, you know what's coming next, don't you? As I mentioned before, Leonidas had positioned his soldiers in the very narrowest point of the pass, next to the Phocian Wall, and so only a handful of Greeks were fighting at any one time. This impenetrable phalanx of Greek hoplites was put to 
blindingly effective use, blocked the pass completely from one side to the other and held off every single Persian advance. Xerxes sent troops in in waves of 10,000 at a time, and each wave was cut to pieces by the Greeks, whose long spears and huge shields completely outmatched the Persian infantry, whose swords and, and spears were nowhere near large or long enough to reach through and pass the Greek defences. And, and, and what's more, it wasn't just this, right? The Greeks rotated out their front line regularly. They needed so few soldiers to defend this pass that they were able to rotate defenders in and out, give their soldiers a chance to rest, right? Like The bulk of the Greek army was able to remain safely behind the front lines and just rotate in as necessary to make sure none of them got too fatigued. And so as the Persian dead piled high, Xerxes he decided to send in his elite fighting unit, the immortals, the imperial guard. He was making so little headway against the Greeks that he decided to send in, well, not the, I was going to say the big guns, but not, not the big guns, the, the big swords, I guess. The immortals were highly trained professional soldiers that dressed in rich, heavy armor and were afforded luxurious conditions off the battlefield. They were essentially the best of the best, the pinnacle of the Persian fighting forces, and they were deployed to the front line when the standard Persian infantry failed to make even the slightest dint in the Greek defenses. And after marching forward to meet the, the Greeks, however, the immortals, despite their training and their skills as this elite imperial bodyguard, they made absolutely no offensive progress against the hoplites at the pass whatsoever. According to Herodotus, a favoured tactic of the Greeks at this point, the hoplites, they would feign a small retreat, lure the Persians a little way into the choke point, and then turn around, set upon them from all sides, and ruthlessly just butcher them as they fell for this trap. And as night fell on the first day of fighting, the Persians had lost thousands upon thousands of troops, while the Greeks had lost two or three. Not, not two or three thousand, two or three, full stop. Two or three people. Imagine that against a force of hundreds of thousands, a force that outnumbers them by a couple of orders of magnitude. The Greeks not only held their own, but lost no more than three soldiers while killing thousands themselves. The second day of battle arrived and Xerxes, now feeling sure that despite not having gained any ground, his forces would have winnowed down the Greek army with deaths and injuries, and as a result, he tried the same tactic again. He sent forth another wave of infantry to break upon the rocks of the Greek defences. And he couldn't have been more wrong about the situation that the Greek soldiers were in. He couldn't have been more wrong about, you know, how many casualties they'd suffered and how many of them had been killed the day before. The Greeks determinedly held their ground, rebuffing every attack that the Persians launched against them. And again, there is just no weakness for the Persians to exploit. Archers are no good against the Greek shields and armor. Infantry can't get near to them due to their long spears. And the Persian cavalry is absolutely useless. On the marshy ground, there's no flanks for it to, to attack. There's no mobility for it to utilize. Thermopylae is used even in today's military studies as the perfect example of force multipliers. This is a military science concept involving how different factors can cause a small force, in this case 7,000 7, Greek soldiers, 
in order to receive achieve results that are well beyond what you'd think would be possible. In this case, you know, holding off 300,000 Persians. The force multiplies at Thermopylae with things like the terrain that the Greeks took advantage of, the equipment they had, the training that the hoplites had received, and then other additional factors like high morale and, and a high motivation in defending their homeland. The fact that such a small force could hold off an overwhelmingly larger one for so long without taking meaningful casualties is unbelievable. But that's just what happened. For two days, the Greeks seemed largely unaffected by the Persian assault. They killed thousands and thousands of Persians for the loss of only a handful of Greeks. Xerxes was stunned. He couldn't believe the failure of his troops to make any headway whatsoever. And that all he had to show for two days of furious fighting were the growing piles of Persian dead. But then, as night fell on the second day, the Persian emperor had a piece of very good fortune indeed. Good fortune that would ultimately secure him a victory there at Thermopylae. A Greek fellow, a Trachinian named Ephialtes, he approached the Persian camp as night fell And he told Xerxes of the existence of the small mountain pass. The one that I mentioned before that Leonidas had fortified with 1,000 men before the battle began. This secret became known to the Persians and the weakness in the defences of Thermopylae was now in the hands of the enemies of the Greeks. Now, there's no rich or romantic backstory for this traitorous behaviour. Ephialtes apparently just wanted a reward and he sold out his people for the prospect of one from the Persian emperor. Xerxes jumped at the chance to encircle the Greeks, and when Ephialtes agreed to guide Persian troops along the mountain path, Xerxes redeployed his immortals. And so before the sun rose on the third day, Ephialtes led the immortals up along this track to where the thousand Phocians that Leonidas had stationed were all there waiting. And at sunrise, the immortals arrived where the Phocians were waiting, And they leapt up, the Phocians, they leapt up in surprise and readied themselves for battle, but the immortals didn't stop to fight them. They fired a few volleys of arrows at the Phocians as the Phocians drew up into the battle formations to try to give the fight to the immortals. But then the immortals just went right past them, continued down to the other side of the mountain, following the mountain path around to the rear of the Greek encampment. The Phocians quickly sent a messenger down to Leonidas to inform him that the path had been lost. And uh, after receiving this message, Leonidas quickly summoned a council of war to figure out how how the Greeks would all respond. Most of the Greeks, they thought the day was lost. They wanted to retreat before they were fully encircled and get away with their lives. But Leonidas was determined to remain behind and fight to the last. He did allow anyone who wanted to leave to withdraw and and flee to the south, and most of the Greeks that were there at Thermopylae, they took advantage of this and left. Leonidas drew up those that decided to remain behind to fight the Persians attempting to encircle the Greeks and defend the retreat of those who wanted to leave. And all in all, once those Greeks who wanted to retreat had fled, there remained under 2,000 Greeks behind to defend the pass. 300 Spartans, 700 Thespians, 400 Thebans, and the helots, the state-owned slaves that the Spartans had brought with them as attendants. These troops, they drew up into formation to cover the retreat of the others from the immortals, and in doing so, they saved the lives of thousands, thousands of soldiers who would go on to fight in other battles for the Greek homeland. But those that remained behind knew that they would die in doing so. 
being trapped in the pass with the Persians on both sides of them meant certain death at the hands of the invaders. It was just a matter of time. And so with the sun risen in the sky on the third day, Xerxes, knowing that his immortals would have descended the mountain path and surrounded the Greeks from the rear, he began a third and final assault on the narrow pass. And now, knowing that they were surrounded, the Spartans, the Thespians, the Thebans, and the Helots that remained behind, they didn't bother trying to defend the pass. They didn't draw up into a defensive phalanx and attempt to hold their ground. No, they rushed forward to meet the oncoming army, determined to kill as many Persians as they could before they themselves were slain. And of course, without their defensive position in the narrow choke point, and without a secure rear, the Greek defences were no match for the sheer numbers of the Persian forces. The battle was furiously fought, and when the Greek spears broke, they drew their swords, and when they lost their swords, they fought with their hands and teeth, according to Herodotus. But it was no good, of course, and finally, each and every Greek was killed. Leonidas himself was perforated with arrows before the Greeks took their final stand on a small nearby hill, and ultimately, they were surrounded and either shot or cut to pieces by the Persians, who won the Battle of Thermopylae after three days of fighting. But the battle hadn't been fought in vain for the Greeks. Even after a total defeat, news of the massive Persian army spread throughout the rest of Greece and preparations were made to deal with it before it arrived. As planned, Athens was evacuated before the Persian army could arrive and the new defences that I'd talked about in, in Corinth were made to hold off the invading force. And while it cost them their lives, Leonidas and the Greeks that he led to Thermopylae They bought a little time for the rest of Greece, time that was used to ready the defences of the rest of the Greek world. When the Athenians fighting in the sea at the Battle of Artemisium heard about the loss at Thermopylae, they also withdrew. They withdrew their ships to fight another day. But just as at Thermopylae, they had delayed the advancement of the Persian forces and they'd made themselves ready to fight in future battles. And as the Greco-Persian War reached its tipping point, the Battle of Salamis that we'll get across next week, The Battle of Thermopylae wasn't just important for the time that it bought the Greeks. In fact, if anything, quite the opposite, because the time that it bought actually paled in comparison to how much time Xerxes cost himself as he very slowly burnt and pillaged his way south. No, it wasn't so much the time that Leonidas and his forces bought at Thermopylae. What was important about this battle, much like the Battle of Marathon, is that it was an inspirational example of resistance against the Persian invaders. And even at the time, it was used as an example of how a group of small, free soldiers could take the fight to a massive army of imperial subjects. Never mind the fact that, you know, the Spartans brought their slaves along with them. Forget about that part for a minute. But despite being a defeat, Thermopylae bolstered Greek courage and morale and played a big part in readying the rest of their forces in continued defence of their homeland. Remember... This is an alliance of traditional rivals and enemies. And Thermopylae, even in defeat, brought the Greeks together and prepared them to defend their shared homeland. And we've still got a lot to get across when talking about the defence of that homeland. So be sure to tune in next week when we talk about the crucial Battle of Salamis and its aftermath, a decisive point in the Greco-Persian War. As for the direct aftermath of Thermopylae, well, after seizing control of the past, the Persians interrogated the few surviving prisoners that they'd taken, and they asked them why there had been so few Greeks at the past, why this hadn't been an all-in effort. 
and that there hadn't been tens of thousands of Greeks attempting to defend this invasion. And they were told by those that were being interrogated that not many soldiers were actually able to come because the Olympic Games were on and they were all busy there. The Persians then asked in disbelief what the, what the prize was for a winner at the Olympic Games that could tempt these soldiers and warriors away from fighting for the existence of their homeland. And as you'll know from episode 161, the answer was an olive wreath. And upon, upon hearing this, apparently one of the Persian generals, he couldn't believe it. He jumped up and exclaimed to another general. He said, ye gods, Mardonius, what men have you brought us to fight against? Men that fight not for gold, but for glory. So this definitely rattled the Persians, despite the fact that, you know, their, their campaign at Thermopylae had been a, an overwhelming success and their victory had been near total. The Persians were still having second thoughts, it seems, about going up against the Greeks as, as their adversaries. Anyway, Xerxes then marched his troops onwards towards Boeotia and Attica, and he raised any resisting uh, cities as, as, as he went along, while the Greeks prepared their defences in Corinth. Now, the raising and the burning and the pillaging, that was expected, you know, and some of these cities, as I say, like Athens, were, were evacuated in advance of the, uh, of, of the Persian onslaught. But what was not expected of the Persians was the way that they treated Leonidas after death. The Persians captured Leonidas's corpse, of course, after Thermopylae, and ordinarily the Persians, they respected strength and courage, and they usually treated vanquished foes with, with respect and honour. But when it came to Leonidas's corpse, Xerxes ordered it decapitated and crucified. A very dishonourable end. Xerxes was known to have terrible rage a terrible rage-filled temper so maybe it wasn't super uncharacteristic for him but but still this was a uh, a marked departure from the normal way that the Persians dealt with their vanquished enemies the rest of the Greek dead however they were buried at Thermopylae after the after the Persians had moved on and later on a memorial with a stone lion was built to commemorate the battle there and 40 years after the battle once the Greco-Persian War had sort of more or less concluded, Leonidas's bones were finally returned to Sparta, and he was given the, ba- the, the, the burial that befitted him as a fallen hero. And while today Thermopylae looks nothing like the ancient battlefield that it once was, you can find an epitaph atop the mound of buried dead, attributed to a poet, Simonides, who lived at the time of the battle. The Greeks that marched to Thermopylae to defend their homeland against an overwhelming force of invaders, they all demonstrated great bravery. But the 300 Spartans who left with Leonidas, they knew that they would never return. The Spartan custom forbade them from retreating from battle. And with none of the Spartans surviving to tell the tale of Thermopylae, Simonides' epitaph tasks those who visit the final resting place of those Spartans to pass on the story in their stead. O stranger, tell the Spartans that we lie here, obedient to their laws. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Battle of Thermopylae. And uh, I guess this is kind of, we're approaching Half of History's first ever three-parter, right? Like, even though it doesn't say it in the title, like the other part one part two episodes do like this 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 is a series of episodes on on the greco-persian war i guess that all you know need you to listen to the former ones to understand we were so 
I guess, yeah, Half Us History's first ever three-parter is coming out uh, next week, so I do hope to have you back for that one. In the meantime, of course, however, all the boring housekeeping stuff coming your way here. Half Us History um, uh, is the website. You can find all the old episodes there, ways to subscribe, the merch store, and, of course, the Patreon. We'll talk about the Patreon. I want to thank all the people, new Patreons, upgrading Patreons, it's so wonderful to see the outpouring of support that has come uh, my way since I've unveiled the new Patreon exclusive merch. Um, I, I'm glad people like the the artwork by Jessica from Inkland Customs just as much as I do. I've had lots of people sign up to the new five, ten, and twenty dollar tiers. If you want to get across this, you can. It's not too late to sign up. Um, at three months of this tier, you'll receive the uh, you know various pieces of merch at no extra cost. There are mini prints, there's mugs, there's t-shirts, all sorts of stuff there. I say all sorts of stuff. That's the three things. Those are the all sorts. Three three sorts, um, which you'll get, again, at no extra cost. It's included. It's baked into the price of your uh, of your Patreon subscription and then a bunch of other benefits as well. So if you've been thinking about supporting the show, as I say last week, there's never been a better time. Uh, jump on board the Patreon train now. Thanks so much to everyone. It is real. Can I say this as well? Like it is, it's a real spur to my flank in getting this, this podcast done. This podcast started as a hobby. Uh, it started as something that I just wanted to do to sort of keep my eye in with history, make sure that I was staying on top of reading and, and whatever else and, and learning stuff about something I've always had an interest in, even though I've never really been able to turn it into a career. Well, with every Patreon uh, membership, it becomes one step close to being an actual career for me. And uh, I, I can't say how much I appreciate it from people. It's so good of you to, uh, to be supporting me in this way. So thank you to one and all, every single one of the Patreons. And if you've been considering joining up, as I say, never been a better time because free merch, I say free, some merch that the price of which is baked into your, uh, your uh, patron uh, uh, support will wing its way to you after three months of membership. So thank you to everyone who takes part. And look, if you're just here as a freeloader, I guess, thanks as well. It's great to have you as a as someone who's just being part of the Half Hour History community, listening to this dumb podcast week in, week out. So uh, cheers very much uh, to all of you. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely indifferent. That's the end of another episode. See you next week for the Battle of Salamis. Looking forward to that one. In the meantime, leaving you here with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Krugma, who wants to know, why didn't the Spartans just use scorpions and warthogs to win the Battle of Thermopylae?